and welcome to the Gridiron Show. Will Gavin, Gridiron editor, Ollie Connolly, features editor, uh, Simon Clancy with us as well. Welcome back to another episode. We are getting well and truly, the draft is on the horizon. Simon Clancy barely able to contain himself. <laughs> over the coming five or six weeks, I'm sure we will be absolutely stacked with uh, draft content. But it has been another big week of news in the NFL. Plenty more moves happening uh, particularly, we talked to Devontae Adams last week, but the wide receiver market being reset, and specifically as the Kansas City Chiefs trade Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins for a 2022 first-round pick, a second-round pick, two-fourths, and a sixth. And then Hill goes and signs a $30 million a year extension with over $70 million guaranteed, making him the highest-paid wide receiver in the NFL. I made a great joke before the podcast and called it Mike Wallace 2.0. I'm really disappointed that I saved it for afterwards. I think you should insert the laugh that Ollie <laughs> gave me for doing that beforehand. Let me make sure I've got the details of the Tyreek Hill trade up in front of me. Sai's probably got it tattooed on his arm. Always. <laughs> <laughs> You mean Mike Wallace 2.0? Um, <laughs> <laughs> fuck, I should have said that for the podcast Again, as well. Why are we Damn doing it. this before the interview? <laughs> Edit that in later on. <laughs> Simon, you know, you've previously had opinions about Tyreek Hill as a human being. How Brilliant. You I can't wait to enjoy the sport. As a Miami Dolphin. Shirt. <laughs> yeah, How are you feeling um, about him as a Dolphin? Yeah, I mean, uh, from a purely football point of view, it, you know, it's great. And from a purely human point of view, it's, you know, I feel like a bit of a hypocrite after we sat here last week and slanked off to Sean Watson, given, you know, Hill's history um, before he came to the NFL. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we could go into a big old philosophical debate about sportsmen and women and the, the bad people that are out there and whether or not that lessens your impact for celebration and uh, look am i going to be cheering less when tyreek hill scores a touchdown for the dolphins i'm absolutely not and it makes me a terrible person but tough <laughs> shit um yeah i mean it, for a purely football point of view it's it's fascinating it's fascinating to see now that you know the dolphins have brought in Jalen Ward, um, they drafted Jalen model they've obviously brought in hill cedric wilson comes over from the cowboys they've still got Devonte parker whether or not he gets traded but it looks probably more likely that he gets moved than not mike gasicki obviously there and then you've got the running backs, Chase Edmonds, Raheem Most that they brought in in free agency. So a lot of pressure on Tua, obviously. It's a crazy amount of speed. Like it's ridiculous. a crazy amount of speed. And you know, you know, the initial thing is, oh, well, let's play, let, let you know, play two deep safeties and you know protect that. Well, that's not really how you know Hill has got tons of speed, and yes, obviously he can get down the field, same as Waddle, but they do just as much damage in the underneath areas and the intermediate routes as they, as they do, you know, catching sixty-yard bombs. That's never been. Tyreek Hill's game has never been just run, you know. Oh, that one drives me crazy. I know, it's mad, but, isn't it? You hear people talk about that with the Chiefs. Now, oh, the Chiefs may have decided to make this move to move on because teams went moved to two deep safety shells, which they've been doing essentially for 16 months, and, and they figured the Chiefs out. So now the Chiefs have to radically shift offense. It's like anyone who watched last year knew the only way they ever penetrated those two deep shells was they threw it to the quickest lad in the league underneath and yeah. he had this insane ability to outpace safeties at depth that no one else in the league other than maybe Jalen Waddle 
had, right? Yeah. It's like, why would they actively say, let's make this really, really hard for ourselves? It was just contract versus picks and age, basically. You've got the two biggest angle busters in the league in terms of guys getting the ball in their hands and able to just, you know, what looks like they're going to get tackled, just be able to break an angle and and break free and, and get down the field and pick up massive yardage. And if you are going to pay, you know, if that is what you're going to do, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, the Dolphins are now also bringing in an offense that is essentially predicated on Mike McDaniel's you know, astonishing run game brain. And you've got uh, Mostert, who he loves. You've got Chase Edmonds, and yeah, we're not. You know, these this is not Eric Dickerson and Walter Payton, but you know, I, I suspect they'll draft a, a running back as well to throw into that mix. Um, so try stopping that. Try stopping that offense. It'll be very, very interesting to see. And like you said, well, at the top, just speed. I mean, and it was interesting listening to McDaniel yesterday when people said, "Oh, have you got too many weapons?" And he said, "You know, I don't think there's a head coach in history that's you know will ever say to you, we have too many weapons on offense.' Oh, so, there's too many great players on our team. Damn it! It's going to be fascinating. And what I think is fascinating as well is the narrative around tour and that what we talked about just then about you know now he's got these two deep threats. He's just going to be throwing the ball down the field. And he's not, you know he doesn't have the arm. He doesn't have. It. But you know that's not what Hill and Waddle. You know, that's not the offense that they've been working in, both in Miami and in, um, well, and also in Alabama. You know, yeah. Jalen Water was picking up screens and, you know, tunnel screens and uh, and those sorts of things, quick slants, and then just taking it to the house from 50, 60, 70 yards. He wasn't running downfield every down, just catching 80 yard, you know, balls. That's just not how it's been working. So I think it's fascinating to see how it plays out. And, you know, McDaniels has got a lot of keys to to try and, you know, turn this thing around pretty quickly and I suppose the final point would be that you know it's kind of following that Rams model which has been so successful for for Les Snead and for Sean McVay and you know the Dolphins apart from last year haven't been particularly good at drafting so why not just get rid of you know it's the 29th pick and the and the 50th pick I mean I was just looking at the Devontae Adams if you use the kind of the old trade value chart Adams is comes out 1,150 points and Hills comes out at 1,144 so actually you know even though the Dolphins gave up more picks they kind of got a better deal on the on the chart in terms of numbers, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for it, and you know, you put your you slightly put your personal feelings behind you and just enjoy the ride. I mean, if that's one of the things you're turning your Trey Lance pick into this year, yeah. uh, then you know. It's, back to that how good that trade was from your perspective and hopefully and we still keep those two first round picks next year if two doesn't work out you still get yeah. two first round picks for, for 2023 in a draft that potentially has Bryce Young and CJ Stroud and Will Levis and Tyler Van Dyke and you know a whole host of quarterbacks potentially coming out so it's um I think it's fascinating to see um to see how it plays out yeah, they have about $700 million in cap room next year, too. So any yeah. notion that, oh, the Hill contract's ridiculous. Yes, it would be under certain circumstances. If you were a team just trying to edge yourself over the top and you really bleach your cap sheet up for the next four or five years, it would make sense. But Miami's cap sheet is so healthy for the next three or four years, they will just never even notice, even if this becomes an albatross and you know he, his legs break down or whatever it is and the speed vanishes all of a sudden. Yeah. It'll just be I mean, a pun worthwhile even, taking. Even the Terran Armstead deal is really cap friendly in terms mm-hmm. of how it works out. And, you know, it's not a massively, you know, restrictive contract in terms of how those things play out. So yeah, it's been, it's been smart work by Chris Greer and, and the front office team. So we shall see. The, th- the thing I'm most fascinated in is, you know, Will, you and I spoke at the top of free agency about tour and then bringing in Teddy Bridgewater. And it was quite clear that they said, 
we are not going to do the stuff Tua did last year with all those guys that they brought in. They had 9,000 play calls and no one knew who was calling the plays. And they ran the most unique system in the league with the second level and third level RPOs that no one else in the NFL tries to run. Real kamikaze style ones where Tua was taking big shots off defensive ends, reading those guys, then to throw the ball deep down the field. And yet McDaniel came in and the, the initial impression, particularly with Bridgewater, was we are running the system we ran in San Francisco, which is not an athletes in space offense where you cannot really tie up you know, play calling on the offensive side of the ball is all sequencing. It's one thing rolling into the other, as opposed to like Cincinnati, where it's a grab bag of let's go get the 12 best players in the league and we'll, we'll kind of figure <laughs> it out later. It's all about sequencing and, and to flow the stuff Tua did best last year with the RPO and the flop reads and all the really intricate stuff with what Mike McDaniel stuff, they don't really roll together very well. You kind of have to choose one lane or the other. So the fact they bring Tyree Killen is interesting because you would think Hill and Waddle, well, I would prefer to have them in an athletes in space college style offense then and just be throwing the bubbles and throwing RPOs. That's where he radically transformed the Chiefs game because he's the only player in the league at the moment outside of an elite level tight end who truly tilts the geography defensively because he is so fast. And there are clips from the Chiefs last year where five defenders flowed him on an RPO. So when the ball shoots out the backside the other way in the run game, everyone is completely out leveraged. So I'm fascinated to see how McDaniel will kind of marry his philosophy, which is the wide zone, then boot. And this RPO stuff, which is where two is at his best, where Waddle and Hill are probably at their best. And whether or not we see, because all the other guys, Kyle Shanahan, um, Sean McVay, they they all radically evolved their offense last season. They did move away from the wide zone and boot stuff. It was still there every now and then, but for the most part, they they completely shifted away. They went really spread. So I'm I'm interested to see what McDaniel's game plan is here in terms of the offense he'll build. That idea as well of, of shifting and tilting the way that a defense behaves is as much as we're sitting here going, you know, uh, lambasting those who have turned around and said, oh, yeah, two deep high safeties. That's forced the Chiefs to change what they do. Well, guess what? If you try and run two deep high safety against this, you're going to change that quite quickly. And then every now and again, Tua will get to take a shot. This idea that he's got absolutely no arm whatsoever. Okay, he's not, you know, Brett Favre. He's not going to be gunning it 60 <laughs> yards downfield on the reg. But if every now and again, someone breaks free with an opportunity to break a big one on just a streak, then he can probably hit that as well. Can I make a really nerd point on Tua as a thrower? Please. That, that is... All right, quarterbacks in the NFL have changed the way they generate velocity and throw the ball, essentially. It's why you see guys across the league throw with two feet up in the air, the classic Aaron Rodgers style. It's why Patrick Owens can be running one way and throw the other way and still do it accurately. They essentially moved the power source from their foot, which is known as linear throwing, up to the hip. You remember Carson Palmer, the classic drop back style, and you would drive up plant all your cleats in the ground and drive through the floor to generate torque down the field. Now guys have moved it to become what's known as a rotational thrower, whereby rolling and flipping the hips, they generate all the velocity. Now Tua in college was one of the most predominant hip throwers that has ever played the game. Everything came from those hips. What happened to Tua in college? His hip exploded, right? So he either had to relearn all those pathways to be a hip thrower with a hip that has been completely repaired and has had all kinds of surgery on it that we do not we are not privy to what that surgery was or he had to learn to become a linear thrower where he's generating force through driving through the ground so i went back and looked at him last week for a piece i was writing before the hill trade went down and they were definitely trying to teach him more to be a more classic quarterback throwing from the pocket trying to remove some of the stuff from his hip back down to his feet that takes a long time to learn if you've never thrown that way before so he is going to be 
so far away for at least another couple of years being really comfortable changing that style. So any notion that he doesn't have the arm strength is just not really true. He's completely changing the way he's throwing the football. It was always going to take some time and maybe the Dolphins will bail on that eventually if, if the other stuff isn't there and the decision-making isn't what they want. But the idea he doesn't have any kind of arm capability to throw it down the field is just not correct. He's radically changing the way in which he generates velocity on the ball. And oftentimes it's wrong and bad and it will take him some time with his private quarterback coach in the offseason to learn the new pathways to ge- generate velocity the way he needs to. I think the other thing to say about Tua is that, you know, you, you kind of say what you want about him as an overall NFL quarterback. Maybe he is worthy. Maybe he isn't. And only time will tell. But I don't think anybody should ever, you know, objectively deny that things like movement and misdirection um, and influence, I suppose, are, are, are the biggest strengths of his game. And it's, you know, it's up there with accuracy as one of the things that I think he does absolutely best you know can he read the field you know we'll kind of put that out there for grabs does he have the strongest arm absolutely not but in terms of you know the deliberate choreography to be able to manipulate the field he's one of the best in the league at being able to do that in terms of you know what he can do the the, the hand movement is very very quick in terms of that rpo game i suppose the question becomes do, do those sorts of things that he does so well mesh with what mcdaniels as a i suppose a run oriented coach you know, wants to do. And I think it'll be fascinating to, to see how that plays out. But, you know, I think there's, um, I think we're probably all in agreement that this is a critical year for him and that he might not get another chance in Miami if it doesn't all go to plan. I'm, you know, not saying he has to win a Super Bowl or he has to do anything of the sort, but I just think they're looking for that kind of improvement. And, you know, I think he took a step up from year one to year two, but I think he has to make a bigger step now from, from two to three and we'll, we'll see how that plays out. It's so just a weird narrative, though, isn't it? It's just, I, I think the narrative is a bit weird about, you know, him generally. You see, I don't know. I think he probably gets a, a harsher deal than, and I don't know what, what's behind it, because he seems like a really nice kid, and he was well-liked to Alabama. There, there does seem to be a slightly strange narrative, and I'm not quite sure. I mean, I have a, some thoughts, but I'm not really sure 100% what it is. Well, it all links together quite nicely with... Okay, the conversation about the Dolphins is fascinating and they are a team that now more than many other, I uh, can't wait to watch them in week one and see what they do. And I was already feeling that way with Mike McDaniels and with everything else they had there. And now we've got Tyreek Hill as well. It just adds an extra layer of fascination. But it brings on to that that wider question of the way that teams are built in the NFL right now. Of course, we've just released an edition of the magazine where the whole conversation has been around the Rams' success at the Super Bowl and the notion that, you know, building a Lombardi Trophy contender through the draft and through patience and taking time might be an, an outdated concept at this point. Craig's done a piece, Craig Llewellyn's done a piece for for the magazine looking at exactly that. And kind of that idea of whether we've shifted entirely in the team building philosophy. It's something I have banged on about this show, on this show for a very long time, which is all the teams that, and the most recent one that jumps to mind, I don't know why, is the Bears sticking with everything last year and giving it another go, is not taking extreme decisions or not taking what seems like the right decision on paper and trying to let it play out if it's going to be the thing that longer term will lead you to the Lombardi. I think I said this last week, 31 teams lose in the NFL. No matter what happens every season, only one team goes and wins the trophy. And therefore, that should be your entire aim. You know, Los Angeles, even if they do end up in cap hell in three years' time, which with the way the cap's expanding, they may not even end up doing so, will still have 
at least a ring by then and maybe one more, two more, who knows, over the next few years with the setup that they've got there. That will be the legacy that they're remembered for. You look on the other side of it and you look at you know, Mike Tomlin turns up in Pittsburgh, wins a Lombardi, wins a Super Bowl, his second year there. And since then, and his entire time, he's never had a losing season. They've been an ever-present in the playoffs. But have they won another ring since then? Actually, if they'd had five to six losing seasons in that stretch, but picked up another Lombardi, it would be considered a greater success than that sustained, sustained success that they have had. And I wonder, Ollie, if there's been an actual shift in the approach from the NFL to realising that maybe that short-termism is, is a better approach to finding that success. I think so. I think there's been a really quick backlash among front officers to the fetishization, fetishization, said it, nailed it, of draft picks. We went through that three-year spell, right, where it's like trade Laramie Tunsil for two first-round picks and all this event, and there was a real race to the bottom, almost following the Philadelphia um, example, 76 in the NBA of, of the process and tanking and all this stuff. And it just does not work in the NFL. It's too hard. You pin your hopes on a quarterback prospect and his hip explodes in a bowl game. And all of a sudden you're looking around at each other saying, what do we do here? And I do think there's been a real notion among front officers that no one has time anymore. Nobody has any patience in every walk of life. Everything's sped up by roll on social media and all that stuff. And it's really hard to do a burn it to the ground two, three year rebuild because you get into the situation like the Texans now where you become a laughing stock and to dig out of that hole is so difficult that if you are even a little bit close, you may as well just push all the chips in and prey on those teams who really do want to get first round picks, even though the majority of them flame out. And you can really go and get yourself premier talent. And in the playoffs, you still just need ballers. It's like everyone wants to find the fun players on the margins and be the smartest guy in the room and point out the off-ball linebacker who plays in big nickel packages and say, oh, this guy's a difference maker. In the playoffs, sometimes you just need Devontae Adams to destroy someone one-on-one and go and get the ball. It's man-to-man coverage in the playoffs. Things get tighter. Everyone gets better. The time speeds up for the quarterbacks. And you just need great players to go make great plays. And if those guys are available, like Von Miller, you go get him. And I think, Simon, everyone's going to look at the Rams and say, look, they've done it this way. This is the way it's now going to be. But actually, 12 months ago, Jason Light, who I saw Connor Orr described them both as him and Les Snead as imperfect high rollers. Both of people have had a career where they've taken shots and failed sometimes. And actually, they took some big shots. They went and built a super team. And who cares if they, you know, don't win their division for the next three years. They've got a Lombardi. That's what matters. Yeah, ownership is really important in that as well because there are not that many owners or fan bases around the league that allow GMs to take a big swing and a miss and then come back and be able to do it again. And I think Ollie's point is is absolutely nailed on. You go back to the playoffs and you look at the rounds, the five most important players in that Super Bowl pretty much were Cooper Cup, who was uh, not a first-round draft pick. Aaron Donald, who obviously was and is the best defensive player in the NFL and arguably the best defensive lineman in history. But then Matthew Stafford, obviously acquired with the trade. Von Miller, obviously acquired with the trade. And then until he got hurt in the game, probably Odell Beckham, who caught a touchdown, had a couple of passes in the game, came in, you know, (laughs) as a trade. It's like these are fascinating... it's fascinating the way that because you know growing up and i've been a fan of the nfl for a long time and you know you build to win through the draft was always the you know that was the philosophy and that's always been the philosophy and i'm not sure that every team can do what the rams have done but i do think it's interesting that gms are being given the opportunity 
to be able to build in this way. And I do wonder whether or not, you know, like an Ollie's point as well about, you know, tanking for quarterbacks. Look at the two teams that realistically have done that, you know, suck for luck and tank for tour have been the two kind of, you know, what's happened to both those teams. You know, Miami's in a situation where it's, it's probably, you know, do or die for tour in, in 2022 because of two first round picks and potentially a lot of quarterbacks in 2023 and Andrew Luck, you know, the Colts didn't win a Super Bowl. Andrew Luck retired and, you know, look at the situation they've been in quarterbacks ever since. It, it just, you know, I think it's a great idea in principle, but I, I don't realistically think it it works. And, it, and I do think if you're able to persuade your ownership to take a chance on on players like that, I think that the Rams example is, a, it, it is perfect, but I'm not sure. I, I don't know what you think, Ollie. Do you think it's an outlier or do you think it's actually something that teams are going to just be doing you know, trying to follow the Rams model, or do you just think because these things seem to be cyclical and fashionable and whatever, whether or not everybody's going to be trying to do that, or whether or not there are still going to be GMs who just think I'm going to build through the draft, come what may. Yeah, it's a real tough one because there's a real narcissism in the old school way, right? Of I can outdraft the rest of the room and it will be on my shoulders and I'll be the genius. When we hold the Lombardi, they'll say, they'll send me to Canton too. I'm going to do the Bill Polian thing. I'll build a dynasty over here and I'll go build a dynasty over there because I'm smarter than everyone else in the league. Whereas the the way that Les Snead did it and Light did it in a similar way, it's a little bit different because, you know, he did get, I guess, this 44-year-old quarterback unusual yeah. situation to know to, to be in, and he's the greatest of all time, and he brings all his friends with him for free, basically. You know, that's when you hit just Hall of Famer walking through the door for free, essentially, with kind of an, an odd, oddball situation. But the Les Snead way is so much more self-aware. It's like... Why would I think that I, I'm staying up till two in the morning watching all the tape? I know all those lads are staying up till two in the morning watching the tape. And all these players look great in college. You know, you can you can run through Mayock's board or Jeremiah's board and get a sense of who the 50 best players in the country are. So why don't I just go and get the best players in the NFL and not try and pretend that I know more than everyone else and just go and get Odell Beckham off the street or go and trade for Von Miller? I know he's one of the best edge who's ever played. And yeah, he's going to leave in the offseason, but I want to go win a Lombardi now and change the profile of how we play defense. So I think it takes real self-awareness. And I do think this young cohort of GMs does certainly have, when you listen to them speak, they do seem slightly more self-aware that it's really hard to win in the league and that it's not necessarily a stain on your character that you're somehow dumb if you don't win necessarily, which I think frees you up as a person to try and take swings and to talk ownership into taking swings. As well, look at that, the two two GMs that everybody has held up over the past 20 years as being bastions of, of being able to draft with you know, skill and just hitting on more players. You know, Kevin Colbert uh, of the Steelers and Ozzie Newsome, formerly of the of the Ravens. And what, two Super Bowls each in 22-odd years? These are people who have whose philosophy has generally been to build through the draft and have used their draft picks very wisely. Baltimore obviously have that plan where they use, um, where they use uh, free agency to get themselves compensatory picks. But, you know, you're talking four Super Bowls in what 44, 45 years between the two of them, which when you break it down, doesn't seem like an awful lot, even though they've probably been further ahead of the field than the most in terms of hitting on draft picks, especially at big positions, whether that's Lamar Jackson. Obviously, Colbert was um Colbert was director of operations when Ben Roethlisberger was was drafted. So, you know, he was involved in the team. So it's um you know, even when you break it down, look at the the guys that you hold up as being the the best of the best when it comes to to drafting and players and those sorts of things. It's not a massive hit rate, so why wouldn't teams rip it up and try and do it in a different way? And actually, from that that ownership question is is a good one as well because 
we joke about it regularly, particularly with a team like the Rams. Does the salary cap not mean anything? It is clearly manipulated and moved around, and there are plenty of ways. Somebody asked us on Twitter about dead cap space, and I kind of explained that it's designed as a way to try and keep teams honest. But let's be honest, there's no real way of doing that. Loopholes are found. At the end of the day, you do still need an owner who is going to throw the money behind it, spend that money in order to bring those players in. It still costs money to go out and get a Tyreek Hill or someone like that. And you need to know that you've got their backing in order to do it. Is it a misnomer, this idea of people have looked at the NBA and Major League Baseball and that's where this has come from? And the NFL, for as much as they like to be the trendsetter in American sports, is actually behind the eight ball on this one. I think there's two things at play here heading in two different directions where you have this new young group of executives throughout the front office, not just the GM, but everyone in the building who they have to go to work with every day who have a different profile of background, similar to the NBA and Major League Baseball, where they've been to Ivy League schools. Everything's about chasing market inefficiencies, right? You have to prove why you belong on the staff and why you bring something different. If you have a great scout's eye, which most of the people running the organizations now don't necessarily believe that one person can naturally pick people better than, than other people over the long haul when they do studies. And then you have all these octogenarian owners, which in the NBA, it's all young, new money. And in the NFL, it's all old money running out of time. Why was Stephen Ross meeting on a yacht with Tom Brady and trying to lure Sean Payton? Because he's 80 years old and he's running out of time to even make the playoffs, let alone win a Super Bowl. Why does he say bleep it, send five draft picks to Tyreek Hill? I don't care. I might not be here in five years. Go win a Super Bowl. So you have loads of really old legacy owners in the NFL with this new breed of young, cool GMs and executives who are trying to think a bit differently, trying to outsmart the room in new creative ways. And as I mentioned before, having the self-awareness that I don't think I can go and outdraft um, whoever it is. You know, I, I don't think I can necessarily outdraft Bill Belichick, even if he's not got the best draft record. I have to try and find other ways to influence the market. And they have an owner all across the board. Go look at the Lions lacking impatience because they're, they're just getting up there in age. It's one we could keep going on about, and I think we will see and keep following this story. And there is, uh, Craig's written a great piece for the magazine. Get the next magazine, subscribe to it, go and buy it. It's going to be well worth a read. Um, just to mention as well, because this is something we could do a whole separate podcast about. We could be here for another two hours talking about this. I feel like we've maybe done it before. But the Indianapolis Colts and the Philadelphia Eagles have put in a proposal that would mean that both teams have to have a possession in overtime. The Tennessee Titans, and something that's been backed in a massive way by Mike Vrabel, have put in a separate proposal that would say that you have to score a touchdown and a two-point conversion in order to stop the other team from getting a possession. So adding a wrinkle, but keeping the current rule as well. And apparently that has been getting some weight behind it. Now, whether they get the 24 owners out of 32 they need to get in order to get that vote, vote passed, who knows? Owners, unlike these hip, young, cool GMs Ollie keeps talking about, uh, are a little bit more conservative about these things. <laughs> Do we see an overtime rule change? And is anyone buying into, I'll come to you first, Simon, the Titans two-point revolution? 
I don't. I mean, I'm not buying into it because I don't think the NFL likes rinky dink kind of. That they're not really into those sort of two point conversion type gimmicks. You know, no chance. Gimmicks. They're not. It's not a gimmick league. Do you know what I mean? I personally think what will probably happen is, and I, I think it probably should happen is that. I mean, I do not understand a sport that has um, where only one team gets touched the ball in overtime. I don't get what anybody says. It's just ludicrous to me. It makes absolutely no sense. And you only have to look back at the last two years and Pat Mahomes didn't get the ball in overtime against the Patriots, and then Josh Allen didn't get the ball against the Chiefs. It's just ridiculous. You know, that was one of the greatest quarterback performances of all time that Josh Allen put in in, in that game, and he doesn't get to touch the ball. To me, that's it's nonsensical. It's absolutely ridiculous. I think probably for the playoffs, I think there, there may be a, you know, what they might do is is bring that rule in that both teams get a possession in the playoffs, but it stays as it is in the regular season. I could probably see that happening. I just, I personally can't countenance a league that doesn't allow both teams to to try and win. And, and people say, oh, well, you've got to play defense. And that's absolutely fine. But try running around after Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill and really fast people going backwards for most of the time for three and a half hours. You know, it's fine when you're running and going forwards and you know where you're running. But if you're a defender, you are mentally and physically shot because all you do is go in reverse, you go laterally, you're thinking all the time, trying to guess what's what's going what's going on. Yeah, I I, I just yeah, I kind of countenance. We asked that. FA Abada about this at Radio Row this year, and you know he's not playing every single down. FA, he's playing you know certain pass rushing down stuff, and we're saying you know when the ball comes into Pat Mahomes and to start overtime, how's the defense feeling? He's just like exhausted in a way that you cannot even imagine, and you expect us to go and make a stop as if it's the first stretch of the game. I, that has always frustrated me. I've always found like it if ridiculous. De- if defense, I think is, if it was a fair, if it was a fair deal. Uh, why is Duck Hodges the only and, and Mike Tomlin the only people who have ever said that they'll take that they'll go on defense first in, in, in overtime? Because if it, if it was an equal thing, surely most you know half of the teams would be saying, "Yeah, don't worry, fuck it, we'll go on defense first. I mean, that's, that's just ludicrous to to assume. I mean, look, I mean, what's the playoff number? Is it seven out of ten teams or eight out of ten teams in the playoffs have won on first possession? I mean, it's. It, it I mean, takes a huge much. jump when it goes to the postseason, which is why. Yeah. And I think the other thing about the postseason thing, Ollie, is that. Not only does that make some sense in terms of the importance, but it's much easier to get past the CBA, the players, everyone yeah. else, because it's not adding significant time on the field. Yeah, I think that's the key thing. I'm all up for having two different formats for for overtime and for, sorry, for the postseason and for the regular season. For the regular season, yeah, I, I would be up for the one where you have to score a two-point conversion. As I said, they won't pass that because they don't like gimmicks, but... I feel there's a way you could do two rules for two different things to, to, to do two different causes. I mean, the you don't want to extend games a regular season because you could end up over the course of a season having one team play in an extra half of a game if you go by by time of possession and stuff like that. And it does become a real problem as, as you start to overlap. I actually quite like the rule for the regular season where it's part of home field advantages. You do get the ball first and everyone just knows the deal going in and then maybe the game could be over in the regular season and you switch it in the postseason to say everyone gets to touch the box. It's the postseason and we want to see the great quarterbacks. No one cares about overtime when it was that weird Ben Roethlisberger one. I remember when he's like rolling the ball on the floor. We had to watch another 15 minutes of that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, let's just go to the 20, you know, in the regular season yeah. and do that stuff. And in the postseason, let's keep playing football. And no, you know, no one's going to play the next week if they lose. So that that to me is at least change the postseason, and then we can figure the regular season one out. Who who didn't want to see? Who as a fan did not want to see more of that Chiefs Bills game? I mean, I can't Live think there's a single person that wouldn't have said, "Oh, I don't want to see another possession of this game." I, I think there were I mean? a few of them based in the Missouri area, but outside <laughs> of that, understandably, <laughs> but apart from those, the uh, yeah, I mean, just ridiculous. 
Uh, yeah, there you go. We fixed it. Just come to us. Forget the owners. They're not important. Si, in a dream world where you could get anything passed, would you go to the college style? Because it is certainly more fun, but would it be a bit weird looking in the NFL? I think, it, I think it'd be a bit weird looking. And I also don't like the way that they've evolved that rule in college. Do you know what I mean? I like that. I just... Old-fashioned way you could go 10,000 times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't like games that finish like 89, 87 uh... after 15 overtime <laughs> yeah. or whatever. But I do like the I do like the rule of uh, of the um, you know going from the twenty five. I mean, it is exciting going from the twenty five, and then I just think they brought in the the that two point turning it from the twenty five to a two point conversion too quickly. I think that yeah. may, you may you maybe have three to five possessions going from the twenty or the twenty five, and then you you break it down to the two point thing. I just think that's a bit. Um, but it's really exciting. But I just think I think that the excitement factor stays in if both teams get a possession in overtime, you know, in the playoffs. I think that's um, and, and Ollie's point about home field advantage gets the ball first is a is a really good one. It's a way of working around it. I just don't I, I just don't see what the appetite for not doing it is. I don't, I don't really understand why. Um, I don't know. I, I don't get the I don't I don't get the the, the make a stop crowd too. You know, Tomlin comes out and says, "I don't fear sudden death." Just a classic, you know, Tomlinism. But it's like, yeah, make a stop. Well, then you go and make a stop after you score. Then, yeah. So every team has to play on both sides of the ball mm. to show they are the better team. Correct, right? Not just the better mm-hmm. offense. So make a stop. Yeah, cool. Okay, then go score a touchdown. Then go make a stop and all that. Yeah, hundred percent. And on that college rule, uh, the original rules. I was fortunate enough to be. We may have mentioned this before on the show, but in Beaver Stadium in 2013 to watch Penn State <laughs> whiteout game, get a four periods of overtime, and it's one of the greatest spectacles I've ever seen live in person. So if people go, oh no, it's a bit silly. It won't work in the NFL. If you ever saw a game. That exciting, particularly I mean, in the postseason in the NFL, people would hail it as the greatest end to a game of all time. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm all about that life. I'm not, you know, I'm not about one team having possession and the other team just not getting the ball. I'm all about as many possessions as possible. <laughs> people being carried off the and, field with exhaustion. Less kickers. You know, you go from the 25 yeah. yard line and you say Mahomes and Allen, and it's a real quarterback shootout. No kickers. No kickers in overtime. You should not be allowed to kick the ball in overtime. Yeah. Excellent. Gents, uh, always good fun. Uh, Everyone out there, if you're not already subscribed, if you are, give us a rating and a review. It really does help more people find the show. And go and subscribe to Gridiron. Follow them on all the social media. Some brilliant content coming out over the coming months, including all of the good draft stuff, all of the great draft stuff coming up. And we're going to dig into that, I'm sure, over the coming weeks. Keep an eye on the feed for any bonus content as well. This has been The Gridiron Show. 